All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. If you are a new guest and a visitor with us, we have been walking through Philippians this summer. Uh, we are quickly approaching our fall series, which we will be talking about the six core identities of a disciple at Grace Church. If you want to know what it's what it means to be a disciple here at our church, we're going to be unpack, unpacking that from Scripture, what a disciple is and those six core identities. So I hope you'll join us later in the fall. And then right after that, we're jumping straight into the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which I'm, I'm really excited about. And so um, we, have a, we have a good rest of the year planned. Uh, nothing better than bringing in your pumpkin spice latte, right, and opening up to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and so, yeah, I hope, I hope you'll join us. Uh, today we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but as a younger dad, you know, when I had my firstborn child, um, I was completely caught off guard how much it takes to actually bring a healthy child into the room, into the world. I just assumed, if you, would ask, if you were to ask me before my wife gave delivery um, what it actually takes, I would have assumed, you know, we just kind of, we kind of wait around, right? We watch lots of pregnancy movies. Um, right, Rachel reads this book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. I probably should have read that. It had clarified so much. Um, but I assume that you just wait for the day to come, and then you go to the hospital and do the thing and come out with a baby, and that's it, right? No return policies, no nothing like that. You just take the baby home, and that's all that you do. Well, after we had our baby, it was then that the doctor completely shattered my expectations. Because for the next year, every three months, we would be bringing our baby back. Now, you guys all know, all you moms in the room know what those three-month checkups are, right? They're tracking your baby's growth. They're, track, they're, they're measuring the, uh, the circumference of the baby's head, the, the size of the baby's belly. They're seeing how long the baby is. They don't really say height because height means that you're going to uh, stand up, right? So it's how long the baby is and how heavy the baby is. And then they put your baby on a percentage, right? On a percentile, right? So they grade your baby, okay? Um, so for example, if your baby comes in a lower percentile than, than the national average, suppose your baby comes in at 10th percentile in weight, the doctor's probably going to say, you need to feed your baby more. Or we need to get your baby some supplements, maybe some hefty formula. None of our children ever had that problem. Titus came in at the 90th percentile in weight. You know my little tank. That's, he's two now, so that's him. 75th in length. Abigail was the opposite. She came in 90th in height and length and 50th in weight. But I just thought that was interesting, that they actually have benchmarks to track how well a baby is developing, to make sure, and, and make sure you're on the right trajectory for your child. Even making suggestions, you need to eat more, they need to, they need to play more in the floor, they need to have more movement, they're not sleeping enough, there's something going off here. So they're able to use these benchmarks to track the growth and development and maturation of your baby. In the same way, the Bible has given us benchmarks to track our growth and development in the gospel of Christ. Many of these benchmarks have to do with how well we're living out the gospel in practical ways, in daily life. The way we love our spouses is one benchmark. 
The way we train up our children in patience and love might be another benchmark. The way we react to difficult circumstances, the way we refuse to complain, the way we think and talk about others, the way we turn from temptation, all these things in a practical way are benchmarks to track your growth in the gospel. When you first believe the Bible describes you as a baby that's nursing on the milk of the word. But the Bible doesn't expect you to stay there because in the words of Ephesians 4, we're to grow up to mature manhood and womanhood in Christ. So here's the question that we're asking today. Where are we in our development in the gospel? Do we see a trajectory of growth? Do we see ourselves and in, 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 are, are we able to mark off these benchmarks that tell us whether or not we're growing in the right way? Philippians 2 is going to help us to see that. And the main point today is simply this. The mark of true Christianity is growing in obedience. True Christians grow in their obedience. That's the truth we're looking at today. Now to set the context, Paul's instructions which, which follow on the hills of Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, which says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Those have been unfolding and revealing and explaining what it means to live a gospel-worthy life. What does it mean to live a life that is gospel-worthy? Now, I just, I just want to, if you're a new believer, this is the truth of this. The fact that Jesus has come, has died, was buried, and rose again, has ongoing ramifications for your life. That's not a truth that's just good once and then you're done with it. It's not like Monopoly where you get your get out of hell free card and that's the gospel. The gospel is the stone thrown into the pond of your life. And then what happens? Here come the ripples. That's what the gospel does in our life. The gospel sends its ripples. It has its ongoing ramifications. The way we live. The way we learn to love more, the way we learn to have peace, the way we learn to think about the things of God, the way we set our minds on what is noble, on what is high, on what is glorious, the way we set our minds on the things of Christ and not on the things of the world. All of that are ripples because of the gospel's work in our life. I mean, it's because of the gospel that Paul can say things like he did in Philippians 2 at the beginning of the chapter, do nothing from selfish ambition. What does selfish ambition have to do with the gospel? What does not being conceitful have anything to do with the gospel? What does not looking out to your own interest have anything to do with the gospel? Well, Paul clearly connects it because that's what Jesus did. He did nothing from selfish ambition. He did nothing from conceit. Rather than looking for empty glory, he emptied himself. And because of that truth, that truth governs and has claim over the way that we live. The gospel is not an accessory to your life. It's not something that you just say, well, I'm, I'm Republican, I'm Texas, and I believe in the gospel. As if it's an appendage. No. The gospel has claim over all of your life. 
in everything you do, in everything you say, in everything you think, in every way you act towards others. The gospel has claim. It's a governor because Christ is king. And so, as a church, it's good for us to remember that because the gospel is true, we must live out the gospel, right? We must apply it. We must seek its work in our own lives. And that's what Philippians 2 is trying to do for us. I think Paul gives three imperatives here, three commands in this section that teach us. These are benchmarks that teach us how well we are applying the gospel in our own lives. So some questions I want you to have on your mind. Are you stagnant? Are you dwarfed in your development as a Christian? Are you stunted? Have you for some reason stopped growing in the way that you should? And if so, that's not just something to fix. That is something dangerous that needs to be fixed immediately. So let's look at these three benchmarks. Philippians 1.12 begins this in this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, we're stopping mid-sentence here. It's important to hear his focus. The phrase, as you have always obeyed, so now, much more. That should arrest our attention. What's his focus? More obedience. That we would obey much more. Not just that we have obeyed, but that we would obey much more. He commends them for their past obedience. You have always obeyed. But now you must obey much more. He doesn't allow his commendation to sow complacency in the Christian life. Right? Think of how easy this is for us to do this. That we look at all the things that we've done that are good in the past. And we use that to develop complacency in the here and now. But that's not Christian obedience. Christian obedience is not complacent, it's continuous. It's not only that I had victory over sexual temptation yesterday, but that I have greater victory over sexual temptation today. Not just that I didn't cheat on my wife yesterday, but that I am now making war on every thought that is lustful today. The war is not stagnating, the war is not growing cold, it's growing hotter against my sin. I'm growing more ferocious against my desires and my passions that are at war within me. It's not just that I didn't gossip this morning, but that I will refuse to gossip this afternoon and be much more diligent in not gossiping this afternoon. It's not just that I didn't lose my temper in the last half hour, but that I will be more ferocious against my rage in the next half hour. It's funny. When you, one mark of immaturity is that we tend to, to hook on to these past examples of obedience to show why we're good now, right? I, I learned this lesson being a father trying to give my kids chores, okay? Timothy, did you feed your dog? Well, I did yesterday. Son, to obey me and to do your chore, you must feed your dog today. I'm glad you fed your dog yesterday. You must feed your dog today. That is the mark of obedience. 
My friends, may we stop being these people that are like, yeah, you know, I've been generally good for the last decade, so I'm good just to keep coasting. I've tithed for the last year, so I'm good just to kind of keep in what I'm doing. I'm good in the way that I've talked to my wife for the last year, so yes, I've got some ability and freedom to do what I want and speak to her in the way that I want for here on out. That's not the idea of Christian obedience. The idea of Christian obedience is that you will be not just gentle yesterday, but much gentler today. Not just loving yesterday, but much more loving today. Far too many Christians have missed this aspect of a gospel-centered life. I mean, can you, can you hear someone just saying, I'm saved, so I can continue to hang around things like pornography, pornographic pleasures, angry tempers toward my spouse and children. I can continue my backbiting feast and devour each other. I can continue my troll-like greediness, my grumpiness, and the several other tempting indulgences because I'm saved. But that is not the idea of salvation. God has not saved you for salvation itself. God has saved us so that we would glorify him through obedience. God has saved us so that we would obey Him. God has saved us so that we would submit to Him. Hear what I'm saying. Words are important. I am not saying that God has saved us because we have obeyed Him. That's not true. God has saved us so that we would obey Him. We see this, we see this made clear in these three commands. The first imperative is found at the, verse, at the end of verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I read this. I love Paul. Paul is really difficult to read sometimes. And as I was reading, I was like, whoa, Paul's being a bit contradictory. Paul, haven't you read what you wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, 9? For by grace we are saved through faith, right? Not of what? Works. And now you're telling us to work out our own salvation Are you a crackpot? Did you forget what you have written? Are you contradicting yourself? Well, there's two reasons why he's not contradicting himself. There's two reasons why work out your salvation does not mean work for your salvation or work out your own way of salvation. Here's the first reason. Salvation in Scripture, especially in Paul's letters is much broader than our instantaneous moment of faith that people typically think about when they think of saved, right? When you say, I am saved, you typically mean in a past tense, right? I have been saved. I believed in Jesus back then, and so I am saved, past tense. That's not wrong to think that way. Scripture definitely has a category for perfect tense tense salvation, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved by faith. But Paul uses all kinds of other tenses as well. Tenses that people don't often catch. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us, he has in mind Christians, he's looping himself in that, but to us, Christians, who are being saved, present tense. Well, that's odd. 
to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You go even further still to Romans 5, 9. Paul writes this, Since therefore we have now been justified, perfect tense, right? We are justified now, what? How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? Future tense. So salvation in Scripture is, I am saved, I have been saved, perfect tense. I am being saved, present tense. I will be saved, future tense. So it gets way more complicated than just simply saying salvation, you know, in this instantaneous moment and act. Yes, there is a room for that, but that is not the full picture of biblical salvation. Full picture of biblical salvation goes on and on and on until it's completion at the day of Christ. So it's important when you read texts like this, work out your own salvation, to ask, well, which one of these categories does Paul have in mind here? Is he talking about my justification? You know, that moment when I believe in Jesus and I'm declared innocent, that is instantaneous, one-time act. It's done and complete forever. Or is he talking about my sanctification, which is daily salvation from sin, meaning that I'm being daily delivered out of my own sinful flesh. The guilt has been canceled through justification, but now goes the ongoing war through sanctification. Or is he talking about glorification, The day when I'm finally saved from this wretched body that's just drawn to sin and desires and all these lustful things that I have. So which one is it? Well, I think, in context, that he's talking about that second one, which means sanctification. Put into effect your salvation. Right? Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. The only time that work and salvation go together is if it's in sanctification. (laughs) That's it. Because we can do nothing to justify ourselves in our work. Second, the word work out can mean to put into effect or to complete, right? So in other words, salvation is not just something that happened to us, but it is something we continue to put into effect daily. It's not to say that we get saved over and over again. You know, it's not like, you know, I go to bed and I'm unsaved and next morning I got to get re-saved. That's not, it's not the idea, But it's an application of salvation day after day after day. We are saved, and so we live as the saved. We are delivered from sin, and so we should live as those who are free from sin. That's the idea here. Now, taking these points together, Paul commands Christians to put into effect or apply their salvation through sanctification that means that you will daily have this ongoing purification, this ongoing destruction of sinful strongholds. You'll, have, you'll do all this by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is this idea of being saved, uh, that we are being saved, is that we are being set free continuously. No Christian, listen to this, no Christian should be stuck in their sins day after day after day. It might happen, but it's, abno- it's abnormal. It's not a sign of growth and maturity. It's a sign of stuntedness and dwarfism. It's, it's a sign of underdevelopment when a Christian goes on years and years and years in the same sins over and over and over. 
You should see people progressively loving more, progressively serving more, progressively not gossiping. That's, that's the idea of the Christian life. It's not perfect. So sanctification kind of looks like this up and down roller coaster, but it's progressively heading upward. More and more and more and more. Don't pick your favorite acts of obedience. I give lots of money to those in need. Great. Now love your wife better. Don't, don't say, well, I've been to church every Sunday. Great. Now love the people you go to church with. Well, I haven't ever cheated on my wife. Great. Stop looking at the lady in yoga pants in Starbucks. That's the idea of sanctification. Is that it gets better and better and better and better. And we get progressively more obedient. And our obedience looks much more than what it once did. So in this way, Ephesians 2.8, which says, By grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, can stand next to Ephesians 2.10, which says that we were created in Christ for good works. Saved by grace, saved for good works. Those two doctrines stand together. If you have a doctrine of justification by faith alone, that renders an effortless, lazy, complacent Christianity. You do not have a biblical view of justification. If you have a view of salvation, that means that you're saved and it was all by God and therefore now you can kick back and relax until the day of Christ. You do not understand biblical salvation well enough. It should motivate you to do more. It should motivate you to be more passionate and more loving and more kind. Paul says that we are to do this with fear and trembling, which is the same posture that Moses had when he came into the presence of the holy God at the burning bush. See it in Acts 7.32. When one has fear and trembling, it means that they have a sense of awe and reverence in the presence of God. Believer, do you realize that right now, at this moment, you are standing and sitting before the audience of the one true holy God of the universe? Do you realize when you go home, you sit back in your lazy boy and you turn on the football game, you do so in the presence of a holy, all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing God? That's the way we're to live our lives forever. That's a mark of maturity. A mark of Christian growth are these people who know that they stand before the presence of God himself. With fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. It's not that they're afraid of God. It's that they understand whose presence it is they're in. Everyone, when was the last time you were just overwhelmed by that fact? Overwhelmed by the fact that the God who graced you with that spouse that you have is listening to you malign her. When was the last time you, you recognized the fact that the God who created your children, knit them inside of your womb, is listening to every complaint and grumbling that you have against them? 
When was the last time we realized as we're worshiping our money and our budget and our wallets and our credit cards that the God who has given us great provision is the one watching us spend it on our own pleasures? All life, mature Christian life, is a life lived in the presence of holy, almighty God. Now, that, to me, is overwhelming to think about. But there's hope here. Because what Paul began as an imperative, he says it as an imperative, okay? Work out your own salvation, right? But what I love about Paul is he never gives an imperative without an indicative. For you grammar geeks, you just know what I mean. For those of you who don't, go read a book, okay? Imperative are the things that you are told to do. Indicative are the things that are just true, right? If I tell my child, go pick up the crown on the floor, the crayon, not crown, crayon on the floor, that is a what? Imperative. Very good. 20% of you guys get that. Okay. If I tell my child there is a crayon in the floor, I'm giving an indicative. I'm just stating a fact. So the imperative, work out your own salvation. Indicative. Here it is. You ready? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's just a statement of fact. There's no command in that. He gives the command to work. Why? Because it is true that God is working in you. This is enough to befuddle the greatest psychologist, the greatest philosopher in existence. What is at the root? What is at the source? What is the basis of our ability to work out our own salvation? God's work in us. I find this amazing. When, when, when people in the church come to me and they say, you know, I'm learning to love my wife better. You know what that's a sign of? A holy God at work inside that person. Because nobody in their natural sinful state would ever bring themselves to do that on their own. We just don't. Doesn't scripture say that no one is righteous? No, not one. We have all turned aside. All of our mouths are like the mouths of venomous snakes. That's what Romans 3 says. So anytime we say something even kind and remotely encouraging to brothers and sisters, and we learn to be more encouraging and more loving and more kind and more gracious. Guess what? That is a sign that God's holy work is in you. He gets the credit at all times. He gets the credit at all times. He gets the glory at all times. He works in you to want what he wants, And to do what he wants you to do. If you want what God wants. And you do what God wants you to do. Guess what? That is a sign that God has been working in your life. Praise God. Now, that comes with a little bit of a warning. If you do not see those growths in your life. That could be a warning sign of something. I would at least want to know. Okay, God, have you ceased to work? Are you... What are you doing in my life? I want to know where you're working in my life. You don't always see it, but at the same time, you should at some moment be able to praise God throughout your day that you have progressed. Thoughts captured. Lust destroyed. Anger obliterated. 
Drive on Texas I-35. And if you have this prayer, you can start from exit 410B, and you can get to exit 23A, I think, maybe. And if you have this prayer, progressively, you'll stop cussing out the other drivers by the end. Okay? That's the idea. That's a sign of God's work in you. Okay? But realistically, just every day, looking for these ways for us to grow in the gospel, looking for these ways that God is applying and giving us the truth of the gospel in our own lives and helping us to want something differently. In the past, I wanted to get angry. In the past, I wanted my own selfish way. In the past, I wanted lustful intent. I wanted a lustful desires. But as God has worked in the life, it is going, it is diminishing. It doesn't mean they're not there. I don't think anyone ever attains perfection until death. But it does mean it is there that that progression is happening. Now, we see this at work in Paul's life, 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, listen to his words, I worked harder than any of them. But what? Though it was not I, but the grace of Christ that is with me. My friends, I'm not talking about this fatism that whatever you do is ordained by God and that, that every single moment of the day you're in no control over. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm simply talking about dependence on God. That you begin to recognize that there is nothing in us good without God. There's nothing in us good without Christ. There's no good work we can do without God's work in us. That's the truth that Scripture holds out. We work. He works in us. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Now, on to the second benchmark. Verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. In a section focused on a gospel-worthy life, it's interesting that Paul would turn now to grumbling and disputing as a sign of our maturity in the gospel. And yet it makes sense. If you study the Bible and you go from Genesis all the way through Revelation, what's the one thing you see at all stages of Christian history believers doing? Grumbling and fighting. <laughs> it's just our, that's our MO, right? As sinful people of God, we typically grumble and fight. So it makes sense that he would say, hey, as a sign of maturity, you're not going to grumble. You're not going to dispute. The moment the Israelites left Egypt, they had just seen God crush Pharaoh. What are they doing? Grumbling, murmuring, discontentment expressed in grumbling and disputing is a far greater sin than most of us give it, give it uh, credit. Don't we typically have this flippant attitude about complaining? Right? I'm, just, I'm just griping, right? One person actually told me they believed it was their spiritual gift to grumble. <laughs> and they believed, they said, I'm just saying what everybody else is thinking, therefore I'm godly. Okay. We won't say anything at all. 
But the, the Greek word for it is gagusman, right? So if I'm ever around you and I just say gagusman, right? You know what that means? I'm, I'm yelling at you for grumbling, right? Gagusman, okay? So anyway, this, this is idea of grumbling is so wicked. We tend to treat it as a pet sin, as this play sin, as this harmless thing. It's, it's not that big of a deal. But at the end of the day, it's actually a lot bigger than we give it credit for. It's a heart that's not thankful for what God has done. Grumbling itself is actually an expression, even if it's nonverbal, of one's discontentment and is generally a reflection of one's discontentment with God. Generally speaking. Discontent with God. Disputing and arguing happens, according to James, because of our unmet passions and desires. We don't have what we want, so we murder, is what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Because of your unmet passions and desires. So at the root of grumbling, at the root of disputing, at the root of all of that is a heart that is not content with God. Jeremiah Bureau's a Puritan in his book, a phenomenal book, Rare, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I read it last summer, was super convicted because if there's one sin that your pastor is guilty of, there's many of them, but if there's one in particular, it is grumbling. Here's what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of, wait, I'm reading Jeremiah Burroughs, not the text, sorry. Murmuring, is but as a smoke of the fire. There is first a smoke and smoldering before the flame breaks forth. And so before open rebellion, rebellion in a kingdom, there is first smoke of murmuring, and then it breaks forth into open rebellion. Have you ever seen a fire start? He's giving that progression here. Murmuring's like the smoke, just before the flames break out and grow. Typically when someone's grumbling, when someone's murmuring, it's just the smoke right before the sin comes. Typically, somebody grumbles about their wife first, discontent. Then comes the flame of an affair, right? I mean, that's just the natural progression. Typically, murmuring happens first. So Paul takes it straight to the nature of being a Christian. If you are a growing and mature Christian, you will do all things without grumbling and disputing. He connects it to our identity, that it will mean that we are blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. We live in a crooked and twisted generation. We live in a generation that's grasping for satisfaction and sexuality. Grasping for satisfaction and wealth. Grasping for satisfaction and affirmation. Grasping for satisfaction in careers. Grasping for satisfaction in accolades. And they come up empty because they want satisfaction in everything else except God. And so as Christians, one mark of a mature Christian is we have stopped the grasping. We hold on to the gospel, the word of life, and we are content Have you ever thought that your contentment is more than just an indicator of your relationship with God? It's actually evangelistic. It doesn't just mark out what your life with God is like. 
It invites others to have a relationship with God as well. When they see your contentment, when they see you satisfied in Jesus alone, it's at that moment you are standing as a rock in the middle of a river, all the world chasing after every other desire and pleasure, and there you stand content. What a great countercultural force. Have you ever thought about that? You're not countercultural in the way you vote. You are not countercultural in the political rallies you go to. You are not countercultural in the, the station that you choose to watch. You are countercultural in the way you are satisfied in Jesus. That's about as countercultural as you can get. If you're not satisfied in Jesus, you may be surprised to find that you're flowing along with the rest of the world. You may feel like your world's different from them, but all the world has one thing in common. They have left the river of life to chase after muddy cisterns for themselves. Muddy water holes, because they don't want water from God. They want water from all the things that cannot give life. You can be a Bible-believing Texas Republican, Red Dead, whatever you want to be. If you are not satisfied in God, doesn't matter political background, doesn't matter your wealth, it doesn't matter your social status, your promotions at work, whatever it is, the whole world can be summarized in a lack of contentment with God. So you see why grumbling is so serious? You see why fighting is so serious? If we're not content with God, we won't be content with anything and we will not be growing a gospel, mature, gospel-worthy life. Now, he adds on his hoped-for result. For him, their refusal to grumble and dispute will mean that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's view of his ministry is amazing. What's his goal in all of life? I mean, you, you're looking at one of the most intelligent, educated, amazing, passionate men in all of history. So much so that kings are listening to him. Okay? So you've got this man, and he's saying, my one goal in all, the life, in all of life, the one way that I will know that my life has not been lived in vain, is if you don't grumble. Can you imagine me as a pastor standing up here and saying, I will know that my ministry at Grace Church is successful if by the time I am done or dead, you will no longer be grumbling. Basically what he's saying is, my whole life is a friend to the bridegroom. My job is to prepare the bride. And so if in my time in ministry, I can help the bride stop chasing other lovers just a little bit more, and she'll be ready to love her husband alone on the day of Christ, on the wedding day, then my life is successful. I'm 30 years old. I turned 30 this Monday, so I'm a, I'm a real boy, okay? So, very exciting moment as a pastor to turn 30. It's like getting your driver's license for ministry. It's amazing. Thank you. By the grace of God, by the grace of God, not knowing what his plan is, I may have 30 years left. I may have 40 years left. I don't know. But what's the one thing on mine? I, 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 this Grace Church might be the only church I ever served. I don't know God's 
God's plan. But what is the one mission in life as a pastor? Is that you, the bride, will be ready to meet her husband and that you'll be ready to leave behind all these competitors that vie for his husbandship. That's it. To be able to stand on the wedding day and see the people of Grace Church in excitement, adorned in the white robes of good works, and to see them with their eyes fixed on Jesus and not looking around at all these other sexy, non-satisfying competitors, to see that and have that moment where I'm not embarrassed because the bride of Christ loves her bridegroom. That's a life not lived in vain. Any of you who want to serve the church, any of you who want to see Grace Church progress, that's your goal. That we together, all the people in this room, will be marching through that wedding day and that we will be helping each other love none but Jesus alone. None but Jesus alone. Now the final benchmark. It's found in verses 17 and 18. If I, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should rejoice with me. Be glad and rejoice with me. Now the imperative is buried in there. You should be glad. Anytime you see you should, that's imperative. You should be glad and rejoice with me. Now he builds up this by talking about his life as a drink offering. And their faith as a sacrificial offering. Now, accordingly, that means that Christians, we, are like priests, just like in the Old Testament, who bring offerings to God. Well, what are our offerings to God? Your offering to God is not just your money. Your offering to God is not just that you volunteer. Your offering to God is your progression in the faith. Your offering to God daily, that you would say at the end of the day, I don't know how many of you go to bed at the same time I go to bed, but that by 10.35 at night, I will be able to lay my head on my pillow. That's really early. I'm sorry, I'm 30 years old now, so you guys don't judge me, okay? <laughs> to, to, to lay my head on my pillow, to think back on the day, to think back on the sins that I kicked, to think back on the fleshly desires that I mortified, and to be able to lay that day on the altar, just mentally thinking about, it. did the way that I treated other women who are not my wife, did the way that I spoke to my wife, did the way that I loved my kids, did the way that I, not, that I avoided grumbling, did, does that at the end of the day make a sacrificial offering that's pure and holy for God? Well, doesn't that change how you kind of plan your day? That you know that at the end of the day, you're laying that day down on the altar as a sacrifice. That your faith, that you want to be able to lay it down and say, I have grown in the faith today. It also implies that growing in faith makes for a greater sacrifice. That's one of the greatest motivations for you to grow, is that you know that your life, your faith, your growth is a gift to God. For God. The more we live... The more we do these imperatives, the more we're able to give God a gift he's truly worthy of. My, my kids sometimes like to color. Sometimes you have to force them to color. They'd much rather watch, I don't know, PJ Masks or whatever. 
And so sometimes we have to get them aside and color. Well, this week my wife just told me, hey, listen, we're going to color. A couple months, uh, we're going to make a birthday card for dad. Oh, great. All of a sudden disposition changed because they knew who it was for. In the same way, if we're just living our lives, we won't have any motivation to pursue growth. But if we're living our lives knowing that's a sacrifice to God, that might motivate us, right? To know that we're giving our life as a gift to Daddy. To know that we're painting this picture, not just to be thrown away, but to put it on heaven's fridge. What a great motivation to grow. And then Paul talks about himself as, an, as a drink offering. In the, in the Old Testament, they would, they would make their sacrifices and then the priest would dump a glass of wine on top of that. It's called the drink offering, the libation. And it was poured out, right? And it simply signified completion. It's done. It's the final touch. In the same way, Paul thinks of his life, even his potential death, his torture, his imprisonment, his beheading potentially, as the final touch that will complete their faith and their sacrifice of faith. When was the last time you thought that way about people in this church? That you were willing to spend and be spent so that those around you would be made complete in the faith. I think of little Myla and the perspective she'll have in eternity. You know, on, on the one side, you can think, oh man, there's a lot of days and years and tears and struggles. But when Myla looks back and realizes that her life was spent as the final touch on the offering of salvation, I guarantee you she will not think it wasted. When was the last time you thought about your life that way? People might take advantage of you. People might talk bad about you. They may not like you too much. But if you're poured out as a drink offering, that's enough. So that their faith might increase? Absolutely. If being a pastor means that I'm going to become the center of mockery or I might, get, I might be the first one everyone's mad at at a decision, whatever, so be it. Drink offering. If entering into a discipleship relationship means I'm going into uncharted territory and I'm going to have to sacrifice days of the week to grab coffee, I'm going to have to sacrifice money to buy this poor youth a, a, a coffee, so be it. To complete their faith, absolutely. My friends, a mark of maturity is you're willing to do that with your life in joy. In joy. Come what may, be spent in whatever way. Be emptied out, poured out on top of other people's faith so that it will be the final touch. Come what may, that we will be joyful. It's a mark of maturity. Infinite cause. So, how are you? Those are the benchmarks. That's your length your weight, and your head circumference. The doctor has weighed you. He's measured you. He's put the tape around your head. He sees your grumbling. He sees your disputing. He sees your contentment. He sees your discontentment. He sees how you are progressively working for greater obedience. 
He sees your joy. How are you in your maturity, in your development? My friends, I pray that we as a church will be marching to the wedding day ready to give Christ the most mature, perfect, beautiful bride that we can by the power of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that at the end of this day, all, however many of you there are, will be able to lie your head on the pillow and say, I have given a pure and holy offering today. Let it burn. May we be mature in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, with my imperfect words and my um, inexperience, Lord, I have done the best I can to give this section of your word. Now, Lord, I trust your Holy Spirit that your word will not return vain, but that it will plant deeply in the hearts of those who have heard it. And at the end of the day, Father, you will be the one who receives glory. It is not I who work in them, but you. And you who began a good work in them will bring it to completion on the final day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.